Hey everyone, Steve here. Often our guests will send us a couple copies of their books and sometimes they're signed. We wanted to get these books into your hands and so we just want to let you know that we created a page at our website for you all to win a weekly book giveaway. Go to eternalleadership.com slash book and you can register there. That's eternalleadership.com slash book. We'll have that link in the summary of this MP3 as well. Eternalleadership.com slash book. Thanks. So the company I founded that I started, I fired myself as CEO. And in a moment, the baton went to a guy who is much more qualified to help us in that season of our company to get where we needed to go because I was an encumbrance. And I think that's been a really good lesson is being willing to say, am I more important or is the stewardship of the organization I work with? In this case, he moved us to a much better season. And Jeff, was that hard to do? I remember going home to my wife that night and saying, I may have just lost my job. And she's looking at me like, well, how your do you company, honey. <laughs> it's our company. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, founder of One Accord Partners, Jeff Rogers. We were introduced to Jeff through a number of people like former guests, Dennis Trittine and Eric Linds, who works at One Accord Partners with Jeff, and upcoming guest, Alan Pratt. All of them heaped such praise on Jeff that I knew we had to talk to him. I mentioned this at the close of the last episode that John and I recently recorded this one and we were so impressed that we moved it up in the schedule ahead of the 25 plus interviews that we have in the can. Yes, we are a bit ahead. So without further ado, here's our interview with Jeff Rogers on this edition of Eternal Leadership. All right, Steve, today on Eternal Leadership, we have Jeff Rogers. Jeff, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, guys. Well, we're excited to have you on, Jeff. Uh, Jeff is the CEO of One Accord Partners, and I love the work that you're doing. You're, you're, you guys build value in mid-market organizations. You work with both for-profit, non-profit companies. Uh, but how you've, I, and I'm really excited to just hear about your journey. I, I love how you described it as your Paul experience. Uh, but, you know, just the incredible integrity you have of just really helping leaders just bring kingdom principles and kingdom work into what they're doing. But the thing that's really exciting is the results that people have when they bring that into their life and they apply that in business and in, even outside of business relationships. So, uh, Paul, I'd love to have you start and just tell about your story and just have people get to know you a little bit uh, as we have. Well, thank you again for the opportunity to share. And my prayer and hope is that, you know, what we talk about would not only be an encouragement to others, but um, purvey truth related to the calling they've got in the marketplace. And so uh, from a a context of sometimes in the church, people struggle that the message that's sent is that work is a means to an end. It's not a mm -hmm. calling into of itself unless you're a missionary in Africa. And that's great. And by the way, our family has done missions work in Africa, so I can I understand what that is, but that's no more or less holy than it could be being a teacher, a mom at home, a CEO of a company, a doctor, right? It's um, And so coming to that place for me and understanding that is really a journey that is not certainly by God's grace over, but I'm in the midst of understanding as, as we go. But my seminal really understanding 
it comes from when I started work with a company called Southwestern Company in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, which would be in 1980, where I transitioned from a, being an atheist, not agnostic, uh, to being a follower of Jesus. And I'm not sure if I'm Calvin or Arminian, uh, but I, <laughs> I do know this, that God was relentless in his pursuit of my soul and my heart. And he pursued me and found me. And through my vocation and what I was doing with that company, Southwestern, uh, I, was, I came to know the Lord. And then it's been a process since that time. I worked at that company for 20 years. I started our company that we have now in 1999. So you, know, you can do the math on that. I've been almost as long at this now as I was those 20 years there. But the foundation came in beginning to see it seems like the work I'm doing is leading people into relationships with the Lord. They're understanding better how their faith integrates and their calling in, the, um, in what they're doing and how it affects their finances and their family and their health and, and so on, and not feeling that it's too you know, go be a pastor. And I think a pastor is an incredibly noble and priest, uh, important element of our culture, but that's not what everybody's called to. And so coming to the recognition that our business, the work in the marketplace can be just as much calling as those things has been a process over a number of years. And now it's, it's what I like to say, it's an and model, not an or model. Um, it's not I do this or I do that. It's no, it's all his, right? It's every, everything's his. You know, being a soccer coach, being a dad, running a company, running Kairos, a nonprofit, doing work in Africa, that's all his. And once we begin to see everything as ministry instead of some things are and some things aren't, then I think it brings more, more joy and purpose to our work, unless we're in the wrong calling. And then, of course, it means that we need to figure out what our calling is. You know, I'd love to circle back. Uh, you know, when you started out, Jeff, you were talking about you were an atheist and God was pursuing you and God found you. How did you find God through that? How did I, how did that initial decision come or, or how did um, I begin to see God once I accepted him? I think both are interesting yeah. questions. Yes. Start with the first and roll into the second. Okay, so, and I'll try and keep this a bit allegorical so it has application in a broad sense, not just one guy's story. So uh, I think you could title it this way that in the, you know, kind of Buford sense of search for uh, success, I found significance. And in that I was in a sales role and I was young, I was a, a college student. And I expected that by accomplishing certain levels or certain objectives and, you know, being the top of the heap of what I was doing, that, that that then would find meaning and purpose. And making a certain amount of money, you know, once I got to this point, whatever that point is, for some people, you know, that may be a $50,000 job and some others that may be a five hundred or a $5 million job. But Whatever that number is, I thought, well, when I got there, that would bring about fulfillment or that would bring maybe peace. And I had a customer that looked at me 
uh, as I was going through the sales process and she said, something's really bothering you. And I remember looking at Sheila Upshaw in Hereford, Texas and saying, you know, I'm having the best day of my best week. And gosh, I've made more money this week than I made my whole last year. And uh, she said, yeah, but something's really bothering you. Now, you have to understand, I was at that time in a door-to-door sales job, and you heard everything and got pitched to do everything by every religious group and every multi-level thing that's out there and nothing against that second group. But, uh, you know, she she looked right in my eyes and she goes, yeah, but something's missing. And I looked at her and I said, you know, Sheila, there is. I have no idea what it is. She said, well, stay there. And she got her husband's business card and she wrote three scriptures on the back and handed it to me. And I put it in my pocket, went on the way. And that was a Saturday night uh, in August of 1980. And at 11 at night when I got home, I pulled that scripture out or I pulled that card out. And you're an atheist at the time, correct? I'm an atheist, yeah. Not agnostic. Now, I was young, but an atheist is often closer to figuring out who God is because at least they've thought about it, right? I had put thought into that decision. It just Otherwise, you're a bit ambivalent or agnostic. Um, so I had fallen into teaching in schools and the educational system that said, you know, it's all science, it's not God, and I bought it. And I was a bit dissatisfied with the church experience that was off track, and so I walked out of that, which is not a bad thing because it was off track. But I rejected all the whole thing at that. So to come back to the story, it's a Saturday night. I uh, lived in this small town, Dimmit, Texas, with Othel and Ethel Fry, is the older couple that housed three college students. And they used to leave a Bible every night on my pillow. And every night when I'd come home, I'd throw it under the middle of the bed so it was really hard to get. And they were in their 70s. And I'd come back the next night, and there would be back my pillow again. And this went on for like 60 days in a row. Jeff. <laughs> and that <laughs> night, I pulled out the card, and I read you know, John 3.16. I read something, something in Acts, and I was so tired. I only got through two. And I said, that's it. That's what I'm missing. I believe that. What was, was what was moment. it? That God is, um, that I needed, I needed God. Hmm. And this Jesus presented himself. And I think I was in this place of where the Holy Spirit came to me and God's word was in front of me. And it says all through scripture, you know, that God's word is it's like a sword. And no one talked to me. I didn't, you know, I wasn't going through the four spiritual laws. I didn't have someone discipling me. I wasn't at a church event. I was all by myself in a room, 1130 at night in a little town in Texas, this kid from Seattle with scripture going, I believe that. I came back to college. I was a very different person, but it's been two steps forward, one back. It wasn't as if there was, okay, now I get it all. It's been I theologically don't agree totally with this word of progressive revelation, but in my life, that is true, right? That God reveals things progressively over time. And so it began a journey of trying to understand him. I found a good church. I was in a fraternity at the University of Washington, would walk up the street, go to church on Sundays, um, take notes. Then the Holy Spirit did a, a, a number on me once at a chapter meeting and and 
I announced that I would be leading a Bible study on Tuesday nights, and I had no idea what I just said. It, had, it could not have come from me. I would not want to have said that. And all of a sudden, a bunch of guys showed up in a room and expected me to <laughs> lead a study. So lead I, was like a, I was a two-week Christian, so I would take the sermon and deliver the sermons. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it was this process of gradually growing and understanding and books by like Colson, Kingdoms in Conflict and, um, you know, guys, you know, Ed Silvoso's book. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I could go on and on and then starting to understand more in the marketplace um, and some graduate study work and biblical worldview in the early 2000s of, okay, how do these things coming together and never feeling like in that journey of once accepting Christ that I was called to be out of the marketplace, but rather figure out in kind of a puritanical sense of a, you know, their their cultural tradition of engaging the culture, not walking out of it, but figuring out, look, whether you're in law or government or education or nursing, you know, how do you apply it into that? And so that process has then been unfolding. I'll add one element to the story that for me has been really foundational. That is getting it in community, though, with other folks that are of like vocation, whatever that vocation would be. And so in 2001, God gave me a nudge. It was kind of like Forrest Gump. I think I just started running. He said, okay, go this direction. And I was like, okay, I'll run. And I didn't finish having a beard and long hair, but it was why don't Christians serve each other well in the marketplace? And the simple answer I had was because they don't know each other. Mm. They would if they knew each other, but it's hard to serve people you don't know. We're forming a relationship here, and through this, this begins a process. I don't know what God will do with it down the road, but it doesn't have to be episodic, right? Can't be, you know, it can be a growing thing in relationship. Well, if you don't know someone, you don't have a relationship with them, um, it becomes then unlikely you're going to come around them and try and encourage them in their calling. And so 2001, we launched something called Kairos. It's K-I-R-O-S.org that has several thousand people in the Northwest area now involved. I, I would say plus 5,000 have been to three different chapters that meet on a monthly basis. And there's someone in their vocation talking about how their faith integrates in the marketplace. We've had the CEO of Disney Entertainment, um, the CIO of Microsoft, the CEO of the Seattle Mariners, um, uh, the CIO of Intel, you know, uh, folks that whose faith is very real, but they're called into the marketplace and they share how that works, how, how as, you know, the owner of XYZ business, do you apply your faith pragmatically outside just integrity and being nice to people? What's it really look like? And so the Kairos now, by being in community, provides me other business people that not only hold me accountable, but challenge me in faith application and what it all means. So that's the how Jeff find Jesus and then this progressive revelation of him unfolding truth and trying to figure out what it means to people that are called to the marketplace. You know, one of the quotes that I love attributed to you is our vocation should be our calling and our calling is who we are. Mm -hmm. And how did you connect to that? 
Well, the, the Greek of the word vocation means vo, is vocare, uh, which means most closely translated is calling. Yet w- one of the challenges I have in this is that um, call, calling is or vocation are used interchangeably. And I think they are actually a bit different in that the vocation, I think, is the application of it. The vocation is what we do with who God's made us to be. And so if you look at, for example, Barnabas, Barnabas was really kind of an encourager, right? That was his mm-hmm. maybe spiritual gift or at least personality. You know, if he took a disc profile, he'd probably be an I. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, but Paul was probably more of a, a D, right? Paul was... Um, his his gift would not have been encouragement, not that he couldn't do it. And so starting to really understand that who God's made us to be, if I if you asked me or asked my mom or dad, describe Jeff when he was four or fourteen, you'd kind of hear these character attributes. And if you ask anybody that has kids, describe to me your kids you'll usually find there's a thread of continuity in, in who God's made him to be, whether they recognize God or not. And that's, in other words, calling is to use that of which God's given us. But the vocation is then where you apply it. And I think as we, the three of us look, all three of us could probably be doing a dozen different things vocationally than we are currently doing today. But it's by a series of choices we end up where we are. And so the vocation is the application. And I think that what we have to be careful of is people think they don't know their calling. And so they change jobs a lot. And, and calling is trying to figure out who's God made me. And then you got to figure out where to apply it. And we're looking for what we do to define who we are. You know, it's very normal in North America. It's even more so in China. But I meet you somewhere. One of the first questions is, what do you do? Yeah, what do you do? Right? And everybody talks about their job title and the company they work for. Right. And I think a better question is, who are you? Mm Mm-hmm. Right? But it's uncomfortable. You don't do that because it would people would look at cross-eyed like, well, (laughs) what do you mean? Who am I? You know, especially again in a vocational marketplace context. But if you go, if you go deeper and you just ask people this question, it's very interesting what happens. Well, can you tell me your story? Share with me your story, and you'll start to uncover who they are right in the story. You know, I had a great mentor, Jeff. His name was Joe Folio out of San Diego, and when he would meet somebody for the first time, he never asked them what they did. You know, you know, he he would say. What's that? He'd say, great to meet you. Tell me about Jeff. Yes. You know, tell me about yourself. And and he just wanted to know about who you are and what made you tick and, you know, what victories you've had in your life, what you're going through. He didn't care about anything else. And he was one of the most successful business guys I've ever met in my life. And I remember him doing that and modeling that to me. And uh, it really struck me because it was so different than anything else I'd ever seen. And I loved it. Yeah, and people do like to share their story, yeah. right? And then at times, you'll find people tell their story, and you listen to what they're doing in their vocation, and you realize it doesn't align. Mm-hmm. 
right? So a question for you, you know, is, you know, because you have really connected with your calling, you know, along this journey to, you know, get clarity on that, connect with it. What are, what are some of the challenges and struggles that you have that might really be edifying for people listening that are on that journey? Yeah, it'd be great to say, hey, it's all gone well. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, what's the formula? I want three steps. Yeah, back to that book on prosperity. I love what, you know, the author says it's prosperity of the soul, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what the relentless pursuer of us, the creator is wanting is that our soul to prosper, which is going to happen in relationship with him. And, you know, sometimes that prosperity does manifest in business in the way you'd like, but it seems to be also, I can find many examples of people that have done a lot of the right things that it, that it doesn't. Now, given the work we do, there are foundational elements to running an organization, nonprofit or for profit, that are more aligned or less aligned with getting the outcome you want, most certainly. So there are things you can do, but it doesn't always equate because there can be market timing. I just talked to a friend that went into the oil and gas business out of Colorado, pretty well known name there. Um, and they're likely going to go through a bankruptcy process because because they started a new oil and gas company just as gas prices plummeted. Mm. Bad timing. Yeah. Strong believer, strong faith, very generous and phil philanthropic, has done well, but it wasn't good timing. So it's not always um, I misaligned, right? Uh, but a, a little bit of the story of, of maybe some of the learnings – so I left the job I did for 20 years because there are seasons in life where we're called into things, and sometimes there are seasons where you're called out. Mm -hmm. um, and faith is required when you're called out without not knowing what you're called into. And I was in a, as I mentioned, Southwestern company, which I loved, and I have all good things to say. For me, though, I was on the road over 200 days a year consistently, and with a couple kids and a very gracious wife, that's not a real good way to have a family to be on the road a few hundred days every year, year after year after year. So I realized I needed to transition out of that. And but I didn't know to what. So I, I told the CEO long before I departed so they could transition my role well. And I left and then I spent many months trying to discern what's next. And here's the mistake I made. I um, looked at the market. I looked at opportunities. I talked to a couple of friends that own, own businesses and decided to go in a partnership with some other gentlemen in different parts of the country. We're going to roll up, become a larger company and go through an exit through Goldman Sachs, which was all working until the market fell apart in 2001. But by God's grace, I'm glad that happened. That led to the founding of Kairos. So mm -hmm. I don't think without that, I would have started Kairos. It may probably would have started, but it'd just been someone else. But I went into a business looking at the market and kind of in a prayer Jabez context, misread in my part, I asked the Lord to bless it, to enlarge the territory. And, and, and I'm good with that. But I forgot to ask the first question is, God, what do you want me to do? Mm -hmm. So I chose something went into it, started a company, invested a lot of money for us, hired 16 people, all employees, 
And the bottom fell out of that in the tech bubble because we were serving the tech industry and we had to let everybody go but one person. Uh, we lost all that money. Thankfully, we didn't have any other people's capital, but we lost our own. And we shut the business down. Mm. It stopped. It failed. Yeah, I had the right? exact same experience in 2000 with a company we'd, we'd started in 1999 and had grown and uh, by the end of the tech bubble crash, we were done. We were selling to, you know, Fortune 2000 companies, and their budget for what we were doing just evaporated. Ours was gone too. What we do, uh, what we were doing, went to India. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was at that point two things. I think two lessons that I, for me that hopefully are encouragement to others. Number one is I understood the importance of having community of good believers around you. And that's when Kairos, as I mentioned, formed. That's when this notion of bringing the faith and the marketplace together and you know, having these monthly meetings and, and being able to get together with guys and not only pray with them, but to actually seek very pragmatic business questions. You know, Do I keep writing checks into this thing, hoping it will come back, or do we shut it down? Who did I talk to? Where would I go? My pastor, great pastor, phenomenal church here. It, that's not really his area of counsel. He's just not an expert in that. Do, do I form a board and try and restructure the company? Do I go get a job? Right? All those questions. Where do you go? So one takeaway was get yourself in community because I believe that one of the enemy's greatest tools is in isolation. I think he prays in isolation and transition. He's finite. He's not infinite like our God. He's finite. He can't be every place at every time. So he's going to pick those battles carefully. And in transition is one of those times. In isolation, when you get people alone. So one of the big lessons out of going through shutting down our own company and letting everybody go and the emotional toil of doing that was don't be alone. Make sure you've got some folks around you. The second one was then coming out of that is one of the guys on a personal board, so I formed a board personally to come around me and say, help me figure out what to do next. One of the guys said, Jeff, what is it that you know that you know that you know? Go there. What he was saying that he didn't know he was saying is, what you're calling. In other words, what just comes naturally for you to do? What was build, your gut reaction to that question? I knew exactly what it was. And that was the th a third kind of takeaway. I went into a business that was a good market opportunity that absolutely didn't fit me. It was it was a mm. good business. Now it hit it hit a bad bad spell because of the market, but God's grace in it was I saw a great opportunity and I went into a business that was not who I was. It was a transactional business, very transactional. I'm relational. Mm -hmm. And it was all about the transaction and doing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and cranking on the numbers. And, and it's a very viable business today once it kind of got through that tech crash. But it would never have been fulfilling for me because it didn't align with who I was. So what he was saying, Barry Horn, is, Jeff, who are you? Build around that which in my world, I'm really relational. Okay, so how do you build a business that's built on relationships, not transactions, even though you need transactions, right? You still have to have transactions to do your business. 
but the core of it's very different in its function. And so that was a very good takeaway for me. So one one story I'll share is this notion that um, really seeking what who God's made you and backing into that what you do. Um, another notion takeaway was, you know, faith sometimes means being called out without knowing what you're called into. Uh, another story I'll share is. Um, in 2008 and 2009, as we know, the market went through its next seven-year uh, little <laughs> hiccup. By the way, we're seven years now past that one, so just kind of keep your eyes open. Uh, but I hired our company to do our process on us. So we have a, a an assessment process that's trademarked, and it doesn't matter so much what it's called or all that, but I brought my own team in to evaluate our company the way we do our clients. Mm -hmm. And it came back in this report with 10 things to focus on strategically and tactically over the next couple of years. And as I read that report, I saw that eight of the 10 problems were centered on me as the leader. And it was a five-day strategic planning process, three days in October, two days in November, one in January. And the second day of that first three day, I fired myself. So the company I founded that I started, I fired myself as CEO. Was this one, uh, the first version of One Accord or was this something different? No, no that's this version that I'm in right now. Mm -hmm. And I fired myself as CEO and it was this very odd moment like in Ghostbusters when they're sitting on top of the building and they said, don't think of anything. <laughs> Where All of a sudden, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man comes across the screen and they're all looking at the guy like you thought of him. I, I fired myself and, and we asked, well, who's going to step forward? And we're all looking around the room and all the eyes centered on one of the guys in the room who looked like me. And we're like, yeah, you, Scott, you're, you're the leader. And in a moment, the baton went to a guy who is much more qualified to help us in that season of our company to get where we needed to go because I was an encumbrance. We need operations. We need processes and systems and structure. And I was good on the vision and the relationships, but we were languishing because we didn't have the right infrastructure. So I fired myself to bring someone else in into their giftedness. And I think that's another – that's been a really good lesson is – being willing to say, am I more important or is the stewardship of the organization I work with? In this case, the stewardship and for the families that we worked with became more important than my role, even if I had to go then go get a different job. It ended up I reported to him. Um, he moved us to a much better season and you know, then things have continued since then. So that's kind of two takeaways maybe for folks that... Um, Jeff, was that hard to do? I remember going home to my wife that night and saying, I may have just lost my job. And she's looking at me like, well, how your do you company, lose honey. Job? <laughs> it's our company. And it was this there was a peace that God's sovereign. And if we're following what he wants us to do, there's a trust in that. And there was this absolutely lonely, um, dark, uh, I'm not everything I thought I was. I can't be good at everything. Um, I'm not Superman. Mm -hmm. I can't do it all. Recognition of 
I guess he meant the parts of the body when he talked about the parts of the body, and I can't be the whole body. I'm a big toe or an earlobe, but I'm not the whole thing. And so I guess I just need, need to be obedient to that. So it was very um, overwhelming emotionally and very difficult. I was in tears. I was broken. I was lost. But I also knew it was the right thing. I heard someone ask um, – in a conversation with Mother Teresa, this difference between joy and happiness, and that happiness is external and joy is often internal, or happiness is environmental, mm -hmm. um, joy is a state of the soul or a condition of the soul. Mm -hmm. And so I think I had joy, but I was very unhappy. It was because I was being obedient, broken, uh, but unsure about how to go forward and what to do with it. So, um, one other last story in this, uh, if I can go down a path just kind of holistically as it relates to family. Sure. As a CEO. So I have a great wife that is just an astute business person as well. So she was very early on at Microsoft, hired hundreds of people, saw a lot of growth. So I kind of can't pull the wool over her eyes very easily. <laughs> She's actually my best and toughest board member. She asks the questions that no one else will ask that make total sense. Like, why in the world did you do that? <laughs> that uh -huh. makes no sense. And everybody else on the board's like, yeah, we've kind of been wondering that too. So uh, she'll ask. But Amy said to me, uh, in kind of the tough times, my way of responding is to double down, to work harder, to work more hours, to do more emails, to make more calls, to have more meetings, to add more more breakfast, not so much dinners, but work late into the night. And so she said to me one day, I came home and she said, hey, Jeff, I've bought some of that new uh, paint you can put on a wall that turns the wall into a whiteboard. And I'm like, wow, for our office. Like, that's interesting. Like, why are you going to do that? She goes, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all these pictures down. We're going to put this up. And then what we're going to do is we're going to put your calendar on one side and all the things you're doing. And then we're going to put my calendar and our family on the other side and all the things that we need to be doing. And then what we're going to do is we'll just invite a counselor in to just say, hey, does this thing work? She goes, because I'm willing to be wrong. And at that moment, if I, of course, I became very defensive. I started to <laughs> rationalize, which is a sure sign that she's right. <laughs> and uh, that began a year of marriage counseling, of which I went to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so true. This is true. And, uh, you know, I'm not Lord, and uh, I was trying to be. And I was trying to work my way out versus trust. And I think you have to work, we have to co-labor with the Lord. And there are seasons certainly where you have to work very hard in, in anything you do. But not, what Amy said to me, she goes, Jeff, I don't know what you're called to, but I doubt it's to fail as a husband and a father. Mm. Pretty strong words. Mm. And she said, you're not allowing God to even show up in your business. You're not giving him any room. And, you know, in crunch time, when things are hard, defaulting to this work more, less time to reflect, less time to listen, more busyness, which is my bane. And I fall into that continually. That's my default, right? That's where I, 
that's the cave I go to. Just work harder. And so, again, I come back to my two things I said earlier, one of which is being in relationship now with guys who are other business guys. So I have a, a, a group of business guys I meet with on a regular basis. We've decided to make it an intergenerational group. It's 12 guys, four of us in our 50s to 70s, and eight that are in their 20s and 30s. And oh, what a great concept. So it's trying to train generations while at the same time being being accountable. Um, so that there's a couple stories in there. Well, Jeff, you just described me. Uh, you know, it's always, I always re- knew that I'm I wasn't so the sharpest sorry. tool in the shed, but I uh, I knew I could outwork anybody around me. You know, that came out of my time in the military and my first couple startups. Um, so for myself, and maybe anybody listening that can relate to that. What did it look like as you changed to allow God to show up? So two, two stories to answer that question. So this intergenerational group uh, that meets regularly, one of, one of the meetings we do a month is a dinner at someone's house on a Friday night, so it can go late into the night. One of the guys that was, who's in his late 20s, been married, two young kids, just starting a business, said, well, Jeff, how do you stay balanced? You seem so balanced. And I said to Robbie, mm, boy, I don't like to do this, but let's go get Amy. So I went in the house, brought Amy out. We're sitting around a fire pit, 12 guys at night. And I said, so Amy, Robbie's asking me how I stay balanced. And she just kind of chuckled and rolled her eyes <laughs> and, <laughs> and said, well, he's getting a lot better, right? I'm getting better. Um, so I'm not answering this as a guy who is doing all of that well, but the trajectory is in the right direction. So the second part then is how I got there. So ironically, uh, based on this time together, I had a radio show in Seattle for a couple of years, and we would interview a business owner and talk about how their faith and business intersect, just like Kairos. Mm-hmm. It's called the Kairos Business Hour. And so one of the gentlemen that was on with us owned an HVAC company back east that had over 5,000 employees. Um, and so good-sized company. We're nowhere near that. And he talked to me that around this notion that Jesus had a, a ministry of interruption, or a ministry of availability. And I said to him, what's that mean in your business? And it was this open door policy, but he described that he allows enough margin every day for God to show up through people, through experiences. And if you book your day so solid that you have no margin, where's God going to show up? Where, where do we allow him to do that? And, you know, he talked about Lazarus, right? Now, you know, Jesus got to Lazarus on Jesus' time, of which the family was a little upset at until the end result. And so he said to me two things. He goes, you know, first, Jesus got where he was going. He goes, don't be one of these Christians that's willy-nilly all over the map with no plan and no objectives. It doesn't mean that. You need a plan. You need objectives. You need goals and milestones. And But he said, do you allow enough margin in that for God to show up? Okay, most of us can agree that's a good idea, but pragmatically, how do you apply that? And that's where I was challenged, and it took a couple of years for me, and this is what I settled on. I have an admin uh, who's very good, who I've given my calendar to 24-7. And 
I sat down and Amy to say, here's what the ideal week kind of looks like in terms of how much time in the office, how many meetings do I have, how many meetings with clients, working with our operations and finance team here looking into the business, how much margin with my kids, date time with my wife, how much time do I have in the office without meetings where I can get caught up in email and phone calls that otherwise I bring home. And so for me, what that, that ministry of interruption or availability looks like is having someone intentionally that can help me manage my calendar so I don't start creeping into that as much as I otherwise in my natural self will do. I just need a check. Now, here's a step I took that I don't encourage most people to do, but it works for me. And that is I set aside 10 hours every week to meet with anybody who I can serve and add value for them. It doesn't matter what it is other than they have to identify what I can do to serve them. And if they don't know, they just want to meet, I'm like, nah, we're both busy. We don't have enough time just to do that. Now, don't get me wrong. I have lots of uh, coffees and lots of meetings with people who are friends. But this is set up for people in job transition, business owners that are struggling, people that are you know, um, their business is affecting their marriage. I'm not a counselor. I'll refer them to someone, but that, that's trying to figure out how to sort some things out. So, so there are people did, inside the company that were taking advantage of that too, or was it just, it was open to anyone? Anyone. Mm-hmm. It's mostly people not in our company. Mm-hmm. And the reason I did it is I'm very selfish. I'm very self-centered. It's mm-hmm. a lot about what I want, my goals, my objectives. I just know that's at least to this date, how I think. So the only way for me to counter that was to provide, to go to the other extreme in a way and to allow margin created in my schedule. So, so my admin knows those 10 hours are set aside every week and she books them in my schedule. And there's a local coffee shop where everybody meets me at the same place. And I have 10 hours every week meeting people in that coffee shop. Then I come to our office so that's my application out of that to help me take my mind a little bit off me because it's naturally so on what I want to do. Jeff, you mentioned that Satan preys on two aspects in a person's life, isolation and transition. You talked about isolation a lot, but how exactly have you seen Satan prey on transition? Let me give two examples where I see the enemy Uh, leverage transition. Uh, One that we can see is in youth as they transition, say, for example, from high school to college. So the statistics on the drop-off of faith is young adults go from high school to college age, then college age to vocation, right? So hopefully that, you know, they're raised in a church or a youth group or, you know, a family that's speaking truth to them. And we throw them into this pit of what is often taught at a university level as well as the social experience that surrounds that. And we lose a lot of kids either walk away from their faith, it gets put on pause, a few, mm-hmm. st- a few stay salt and light. There's an organization I've been a part of actually out of Colorado called Youth Transition Network, ytn.org, Jeff Schott. Uh, you can look that up on the web. 
and they are solely dedicated to the equipping of parents and families for kids making that transition because he recognized the data that says this is a huge loss of our youth. It's mm. just, it's astounding to see the numbers. But, but if you look at this, I don't, you know, is the enemy going to pray in that kid that's in high school? Sure, sure. But the kid that's in the youth group, that's going to church, that's pretty well anchored in their friends, it's like, well, I'm a finite resource. I might better get after her when she goes to college and she gets the roommate that's, you know, doing X, Y, Z with the guy in the bed next to her and the parties on this night and that night. So that's an example, right? That's a transition Mm -hmm. time. A very pragmatic one a little bit later in life is job transition. And the nature of what's happened in our lifetime related to vocations is really interesting. If we go back to our parents' generation, for the most part, they would have had one or two jobs, right? In our lifetime, though, that changed. There used to be this category that doesn't exist much anymore called permanent and temporary, right? Permanent job. Mm -hmm. Ask your kids if they ever use the word permanent job. Like they it doesn't, it's not even in vocabulary. There's W2 and 1099, right? There's employee and contractor. But the millennials, going back to some of our comments there, millennials float in and out of 1099, W2, start a business, become an employee, be a contractor. They just as much expect to be a contractor for more of their career than an employee. And that's very standard in their thinking. The, the challenge for folks, though, is that game changed mid-career for some people. Right. They're thinking that, hey, I'm going to be in this. And all of a sudden, you know, they're sitting at the dining room table and someone went to pull the tablecloth and leave the dishes on the table and a bunch went crashing to the floor. And they're like, I didn't expect to have to look for a new job statistically at an executive level every two to three years. That Mm -hmm. is the statistics. The CIO is like 18 months. The CEO is 27 months maybe up to 36 months, depending on the the vertical, right? So all of a sudden, this person that thought I'd be in this for a long time is having to change every two to three years. He or she often never expected to have to even look for a job. One day, because something happens in the economy, uh, a lot of mergers and acquisitions, executive jobs become redundant. This person that's never done a job search, someone you know at church, you know through your kid's school, the soccer team, whatever, right? Here's this executive you know, 47 years old, 58 years old going, I got to look for a job. I don't even have a resume. And so they start going down that path. And then their spouse is like, Hey, did you call so-and-so back? Did you call so-and-so? You need to get out there more. And this poor person is depressed. Like I'm overwhelmed. I don't know how to do this. And, you know, they're not hearing back from people. So they turn to things at that time that self-medicate and those things I'm you could do another show on. So that's a, that's a place which then they feel very guilty. They feel unworthy, which ironically means they also interview terribly, mm-hmm. right? They're not on their game. They're not feeling good. They don't exude confidence and presence. And so therefore that cycle continues. And if we think there's spiritual warfare, if that's actually real, which I do, then that's a very opportune time for Satan to take that spinning top and make sure it keeps spinning around. Mm-hmm. So a very pragmatic application for some churches or nonprofits is, you know, a jobs transition ministry. How do you help people equip them in their interview skills and in the resume writing and in, in building a contact base 
Um, how, where do you go to meet the people that could be potential employers? And that is that transition time. Those are two examples. The, the teen going into adulthood, you know, the person that's in an unexpected job transition, whether they're in their 20s or their 60s, you know, there's vulnerability there. You know, Jeff is a resource for that. I would, if anybody's in that spot right now, I'd really recommend working with the academies. It's theacademies.com. Susan Whitcomb, she's a Christian uh, career transition coach. I've taken a course from her, and uh, she is absolutely phenomenal. She works with a lot of C-level folks and executives, and I'll, I'll put the links for that too in the, uh, in, in the show notes. So I'm really glad that you brought that point up. Yeah, and I, again, personally believe that we're going to have another economic reset in the not-too-distant future. I'd rather be wrong in that, by the way, but uh, most Yeah, I hope you're wrong, but I have the sense that, that you're absolutely accurate. And I think through that, we're going to find a number of people in transition again. Mm -hmm. So being ready for that, getting some resources out there is, I think, important. You know, the, something that I'm hearing that's weaving under this whole conversation, a lot of these decisions that you've made and what you're doing now with some very fundamental and core principles and values. Uh, I'd love for your thoughts on what those are and how you're sharing and teaching those to, to people you're working with. All of us have probably done mission, vision, and values exercises, right, in mm -hmm. nonprofits, for-profits. And <laughs> I'm just probably not that smart. I can never remember all those things. I know, and they hang on our wall and they look good, and we never, we never go back to them because it, it was an exercise we did and walked away from. It's just, Which is and I know I should, and I'm trying to get better at it. And we're in the midst of a strategic planning process here at One Accord Partners right now. And we're moving our mission, vision, and values into a software or service program so we all have access to it and we can tie our tasks to these things. And that, that sounds really good. And it's true, we are doing it. But that said, what I've seen is I can remember a couple core values. And if the values are just become part of who I am, then just like my calling, what I've got to do is figure out how to apply them in these different venues. I've been a soccer coach, a basketball coach, you know, a dad, a founder of a nonprofit, right? I've got these different hats. They're all calling. Being a soccer coach is no less or more calling than one accord mm -hmm. or Kairos. It's just, it's a different application of it, right? So what are the values that I bring to the soccer team? What are the values that we bring to one accord? And, and I've got two. And this may seem so simplistic, and it's just pulling literally from Scripture. But you can go to our website for our business and go in the values page, and it will pop up absolute truth and absolute compassion, which is really truth and grace. Now, I don't think as a business we can ever operate in absolute truth. There's too much humanness in me or us to be fully in absolute truth. But we press towards that as an objective. So one of our core values is we tell people the truth to the extent that we'll be willing to lose a client, um, that people won't like what we have to say. But compassion, or in other words, grace, because if you put grace on a corporate website, the, the world doesn't understand really what that word means. Compassion is squishy in itself. Uh, it's a little hard for people to get, but they can understand it 
a little better unless they have a faith context. But compassion can mean a lot of things. But one of the things that it means for us is delivering the truth in a way people can receive it. So delivering the truth in love. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because you can have what someone needs to do clearly understood. It can be right in front of you. But if you don't deliver it, that they can do anything with it, that they can receive it and apply it, then that's just beating them over the head with a four by four and leaving them there in the dust like the Samaritan. You know, it's just that's not that's not love. Right. So the love or or compassion piece for us is we have to do things in a way that we can do for the greater betterment for good in a way that can affect people's life and they can receive it. So those two core values really underpin then how we make decisions in our business. And at times I wish we didn't have them because I want to get something done and my personality trying to move it through. And so one of the guys on our team will look at me. So he'll go, okay, Jeff, is that the whole truth? Is that I'm like, Oh man, you're right. I was, this is so important. I was kind of not given the whole picture. And so because we espouse it, our team holds us accountable to it. And again, I would go back to we're better in community. I don't know how to live out absolute truth and compassion if I'm not with other people that are going to help me do it because I probably won't do it on my own. That's a very transparent and vulnerable answer, Jeff. Well, I think um, I'm blessed that I have guys that operate their life that way to help me because they're not here to hit me over the head with a four by four either, but help me grow. So thank you. Well, you know, I think what I'm getting from that too is, you know, just the awareness that, you know, we are so human and just how we operate and and do things day to day. If we don't have that team around us, that just, we have that deep level of trust that we've given them permission to hold us accountable, uh, that we have permission to hold them accountable and all of a sudden, what that does, it allows us to operate more fully and make better decisions that are much more uh, serving of the, you know, into that calling that you're talking about. And when we start operating on our own, which I've done before and gotten into companies like you've talked about, that's, I think is a great idea. And I'm like, hey, Lord, I've just come up with this amazing plan. I lift it up to him and say, God, bless what's on my plate. Instead of asking him, what should I have put on my plate? And then you get frustrated later going, how come that didn't work out? And I'm thinking, you know what? I should have worked harder. So let me come up with a new and better idea. And I just keep banging my head on the wall until I started changing my perspective. Mm -hmm. So you've seen that same reality? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. I'm I'm part of the Flat Forehead Club. Mm -hmm. Maybe a charter member, unfortunately. Um, you know, hey, as we wrap up here, Jeff, because this is this has just been this has been so good. What what are just some final thoughts as people have been listening to this uh, that you just like to leave with people? I was thinking about this picture as it relates to business and the marketplace, and um, the story that was told to me. You know, the um, verse that talks about it's easier uh, for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get to heaven, and I think we've all heard that or heard a lot even about it. And I read a book uh, that uh, Anne Graham Lott wrote on this subject. And she said, you know, the eye of the needle is an actual reference to a physical structure in the gate where 
what had to happen is the camel would actually get down on its knees and it had to take its goods off its back and it could get through it. So it's not impossible. Yeah, it was, the, got, it was the needle gate on the wall there in Jerusalem. So it's, it's not you know, like a sewing needle. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I used to think, well, that means it's impossible. Mm-hmm. No, it's not possible. You just have to take off the baggage, right? And you have to get on your knees. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one. We have to take off our baggage, get on our knees. Two is on the other side of that gate, what would often happen is based on who the traveler was that was showing up, they would want to know if this person is a spy or if they're trustworthy. And inside that gate would be the 12 elders. And they would sit in a circle and that traveler would then stand in the middle and they would interrogate that person. Kind of interesting to say we're going to vote to let him in and open the bigger gate or or not. But the point in addition to that that to me is really interesting, outside that 12 was a young person behind each one of those 12 that was watching how the elders of the city ran that city. They were training the next generation. And I believe it's incumbent upon us that are in the marketplace, whatever we're doing, whatever that is, to be thinking multi-generationally, to be thinking about who are we bringing up and and how are we speaking into their life, not just what are we doing in our business and our company. And, oh, by the way, we're, you know, we're really charitable and we give a lot away. Uh, And you may be in a season you can do that. You may be in a season you can't do that. But either way, could you be training people that could carry that baton when it's their turn. And I I believe in the Western culture, unlike some other cultures, we don't give much credence to generational transfer. We we discount the elderly. We don't give them the due they're deserved. But we also have not spoken well into the up-and-coming generations. What we do is we label them millennials, Gen X, Gen Y, whatever. And so therefore, we kind of make it okay to distance ourselves and say they're different and they don't think like we do. And we've gotten away from, I think, one of the fundamental reasons business exists, which is a way to disciple people. And those Jewish elders, I think, had it well understood as they were inside the gate saying we got to show the next folks, women and men, in that case it would have been men, but now women and men, we need to be showing who's next how to do it. Well, you know, that reminds me of the great quote from the philosopher Nicholas Cage. He is, oh yes. <laughs> if you label me, you negate me. <laughs> there you go. But, you know, you're right, though. There are. I, I love what you're saying. The uh, I've just had this conversation literally in the last week with probably three or four business leaders just about – millennials and that th- they're they they think differently they have different values they're looking for uh, i just saw a survey that was just in fortune magazine comparing what they called traditionalists with millennials in the okay. and the differences on just what was important to them uh, purpose and work being appreciated salary was the differences really struck me i mean they were opposite ends of the spectrum in different mm-hmm. areas so you know taking the time as a business leader to sew in and transfer leadership skills, relationship skills, business skills into that generation. It's incumbent upon us, especially from the perspective of kingdom work, because they're going to be, they're 50% of the workforce and, and, and increasing. And if we don't take a role to sow into them, they're just going to be doing what, you know, operating on whatever's brought them to this point in their life. Absolutely. And so we, we can, you know, there's a, a chance to significantly move the needle 
in discipling this nation, nation, in cultural transformation, by doing a lot of things that you're talking about, both in our own company, but then just take an interest. I love I love the idea of this forum, multi generational forum. I'm I'm actually going to start doing that here in Denver. Uh, we've been talking about that, but you know what? We just we just need to do it. We're going to pull that together, and I'm excited about that. Send me a note, and I'll uh, send you a bunch of information on kind of how we structured it and how it's working. But I'll just say it's life-giving for all of us. You know, uh, Jeff, if you want to send me that information, I would love to include that in the post about the show notes. So if people are listening, they can go there. We can have a section on there and just have that as a resource for anybody out there that wants to start uh, a mentoring forum on business and spiritual growth and include multi-generations if, if you'd like to, us to do that. Absolutely. If it's going to serve, you bet. So everybody listening, just uh, come to the post uh, about this episode and all the resources that Jeff just talked about. And, you know, as we as we close up here, t- tell us a little bit about One Accord Partners, what you guys are doing, maybe Kairos, and, uh, and how to find you. Well, I'll start on Kairos. Uh, it's K-I-R-O-S dot org. And that is a business organization, uh, Faith in the Marketplace. Uh, Our objective is to transform the way people view their business. And um, I think there's lots of resources on that site and ways you could connect. But folks could find many, many talks and presentations that would be relevant to them in the marketplace. One Accord Partners is... uh, not only in the Northwest, but we have some other locations, is a team made up of CEOs that have growth or revenue pedigree, typically baby boomers uh, that have had some type of exit that don't want to go back and be an employee necessarily, uh, yet they're called into community so they don't want to be on their own. And we work with privately held companies to help grow their value uh, in operational capacity. So we step into actually operationally help companies. We're not very good consultants, but we're really good operators in helping companies to grow their value through people that have been in the seat of a CEO because that's where they came from. Mm -hmm. So we can speak as a peer to the owner, uh, hopefully with truth and compassion to help them get what they want out of their life. So that's, that's our business, One Accord Partners. Great. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. And uh, Jeff, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, I really appreciate your time. We'd love to have you come back on sometime down the road also. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I will serve any way I can. Uh, happy to circle back on that front or other ways that you would like. And thank you for the opportunity so much and your good work in getting just this type of information out to a, a greater audience. Uh, I think that searching for a lot of the things that you're sharing, not only this, but a lot of other content. So thank you. Well, we just, we're just trying to be faithful with the calling God's given us. And, uh, you know, every step of the way, it's just been just a new level of just excitement, joy, fulfillment, all the words you're talking about. So when you really do connect with those things with your life and what's important, uh, it's just fun waking up on you know every morning just excited about what the day is going to hold and bring so thank you all right thanks thanks, jeff Jeff. if you'd like to learn more about one accord partners and how they could come alongside your organization just go to eternalleadership.com slash zero five seven and there we'll have a link to them as well as jeff's bio and much more that's eternalleadership.com slash zero five seven turning a corner 
has this show meant something to you? If so, could you do us a favor and introduce us to your friends and colleagues? Just tell them about the show. And if they're technologically illiterate, walk them through signing up for this podcast. May was a very flat month for us. And while June is looking like it's going to be our best month yet, we'd love to pour into a lot more people. And for that to happen, we need your help. Thank you to everyone who has. And thank you to everyone that's been reaching out to us, not only giving us encouragement, but also that constructive criticism. You can contact us through Facebook, facebook.com slash eternal leadership on Twitter at eternal leaders, LinkedIn, where we have a private LinkedIn group to search eternal leadership and through email, Steve at eternal and John at eternal Thanks. Next time on eternal leadership, author of the book, small business, big pressure, a faith-based approach to guide the ambitious entrepreneur, Daryl Lyons. We sit down over a breakfast taco and I, and I explain everything to him and all the circumstances. I said, man, I just can't figure this thing out. And I don't remember what he said, but I remember what God said through him. And he said, are you done yet? Are you done living the life I never intended you to live? Are you done carrying the worry and the burdens of life? Are you done trying to control every circumstance, every uh, every person? Um, and, and I was completely done. I really liked Daryl. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.